the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll talk today about financial inequality and the banking and financial systems that perpetuate it. New York Times reporter Emily Flitter has written a book titled The White Wall, and she'll join us to tell us what her research has found about the way our banking system creates and perpetuates racial wealth gaps and economic devastation for African Americans. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. In the current narrative and discussion about racial inequality in America and its origins, there are a few numbers that have become guideposts in the debates and arguments about solutions. No matter how you slice them, they boil down to this. White Americans, per capita, have about six times the wealth of an average black American. Six times. It's an outcome that speaks to lingering institutional barriers to equality. And it really should be the focal point of our efforts to make things fairer. But not frequently enough are we talking about which institutions are really responsible for that gap. How did it get created? How does it persist? Banking and finance dictate a lot of how housing operates, including credit scores, where you can buy a home, and often whether someone can buy a home at all. Banking and finance also control the kinds of insurance someone can get, what that insurance costs, and when something happens, what kind of payout you're due. Banking and finance, especially our largest financial institutions, have untold power to expand and shrink wealth which deeply affects people's life outcomes, which also plays havoc with racial inequality. Like many institutions in our country, banking banking is interwoven into our country's history, including the promotion of slavery and later in job and housing discrimination. But interestingly, a few years ago, we saw some financial institutions appear to shift their orientation toward the American public. During and after the summer of 2020, we saw lots of financial institutions begin offering money to restore some of the equity, equality, that we all say we want. J.P. Morgan Chase, for instance, committed $30 billion to advance racial equity. 
City put more than a billion toward projects to help close the racial wealth gap. And Bank of America directed $300 million to do what it said would be advancing racial equality. But what happened to all of this money? Did it actually help our country become more equal? And how has banking and finance culture actually shifted in American life? Why is it still true in 2023 that white people, white families, have six times the wealth of the average black family? Emily Flitter is a finance reporter for The New York Times, and she has been covering these topics for some time. She recently wrote a book titled The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. And in the book, Emily details the horrors of discrimination that exist within financial institutions today. But in addition to this, she explores how unwilling bankers and financiers are when it comes to confronting racism, which only allows them to perpetuate more of it. It's where we begin the conversation today, and I'm really pleased to welcome Emily Flitter to Detroit Today. Emily, it's really great to have you here with us. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So you've been covering finance for a long time. Uh, tell me how you got started down this road of looking specifically into anti-black discrimination that exists inside the banking and finance industry in our country. It started with uh, a an effort, actually, to look into the Me Too uh, phenomenon, the um, phenomenon in which women were being abused in various industries and and silenced, you know, until this sort of revelatory moment in 2017. Um, at the New York Times, which, um, you know, was, was sort of like the point at which the Me Too movement began, um, we were actually told in the business section to figure out why there wasn't a sort of an unburdening of all of these silenced um, stories in the in finance. And I started calling around and I met Linda Friedman, a lawyer who um, is one of the most uh, seasoned and um, accomplished uh, representative of groups of disadvantaged people on Wall Street. So she did the case um, in which she represented women who were being uh, sexually abused at a uh, firm in the New York area that had a room called the Boom Boom Room, um, which, you know, you can imagine what that was for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I called her and I said, Linda, we're we're looking for stories. Like, are, are there any stories that you have that haven't come out And she was like, don't, she was like, don't focus on this. Racism on Wall Street is so much worse and no one is paying attention. And I said, okay, what, what do you got? And she started to tell me about some of her clients. And at first I, you know, coming at this topic sort of without any 
um, real understanding of the size of the problem dismissed some of the stories. And then uh, it, outside of my relationship with Linda, I met uh, a man who had been working at J.P. Morgan uh, at a Chase branch in Arizona who had recorded his boss making racist comments and uh, who knew a customer who had also made his own recordings of um, another employee of the branch uh, saying racist things. And um, I published their stories. They had hours of recordings and it just became like completely irrefutably a story about racism. In fact, uh, the headline was, this is what racism sounds like in banking. Um, and, And readers could listen for themselves. And it took all of the he said, she said elements out of the the story, these recordings. And then in, that sort of provided the context for me to go back and look at the other stories that I had already had, you know, laid out for me and realize what they were. Um, and that's been a real theme of my reporting um, and the reporting of others um, in this space, it's that uh, there's so much racism that is so subtle uh, that if the, even the people in experiencing it um, on an individual basis double, they sort of they question themselves. They they sort of think, what if I am just misunderstanding all of this? Mm-hmm. Is it really because I'm black? Is that why I'm being treated like this? What if I just have a bad boss? And it's only when you put all of these stories together that you really see the big picture and the meaning that each story contributes to. Yeah, that, that it's a pattern that exists and, and perpetuates itself. One of the really wonderful uh, things about the book is the stories that you tell inside and, and how they both show that inside these institutions, inside these banking and finance institutions, there is a culture of inequality that affects the folks who work there, but also how that ends up bleeding over into the way that those institutions deal with uh, customers, uh, people whose money uh, or insurance or or other financial commodities that uh, they're dealing with. So I want to have you tell just a few of these stories to, to give us an example. So there is a, a story of Jabari Bennett and Clarice Middleton. Talk about their experiences at banks and why these stories caught your attention. So those are two stories of uh, customers who visited Wells Fargo branches. Um, Jabari was in Delaware and Clarice was in Georgia, outside in a suburb of Atlanta. Um, and they both basically went in thinking that they were going to do basic banking transactions. Clarice had a check that was issued by Wells Fargo um, and Jabari had a bank account at Wells Fargo that he wanted to withdraw money from. So it was his money he expected to be able to go into the bank and withdraw some of it in cash. Um, and they both did not get those services. I, Clarice, at, you know, at the end, after the police were called, um, was able to cash the check, but it was only after she literally was afraid for her life. Um, and what happened was the tellers at both 
uh, bank branches decided that these were suspicious people who were up to no good and were trying to defraud the bank. Uh, Clarice and Jabari are both black, and um, they were racially profiled. And how do I know this? Uh, it happens all the time, um, and there's a there's a a quality. And in Clarice's case, it's it's really um, really remarkable uh, where all of the sort of like I'm following the rules logic, like the, I'm going to show you all of the steps that I've taken to adhere to your standards. All of that just gets thrown right out the window. And what I mean by that is Clarice actually had worked as a bank teller. So she had been issued a check by a landlord. I think she had overpaid her rent. The landlord issued her a check and she wanted to cash it. And um, she took the knowledge that she had gained working at a bank. It wasn't Wells Fargo. It was a different major bank. And said, I'm going to go to the, the bank that issued the check where, you know, it'll be easiest to cash this check quickly. She took two forms of ID. She um, signed the back of the check. She did everything that was supposed to be done. Mm -hmm. And she thought about it from a teller's perspective, like what's it going to take? And she went in and they just didn't believe that the check was really for her. They, um, they didn't really even explain what they thought was fraudulent about it, but they said that they suspected fraud. They wouldn't cash it. She got upset. They called the cops. They made her stand outside the branch. The cop showed up. And when the cop heard everything, um, he basically said to the tellers, you, you should cash this check. There's nothing wrong here. Um, in Jabari's case, he wanted to withdraw several thousand dollars to buy a used car in cash. He um, knew that the tellers might ask a question about why he had a driver's license from a different state. And he had, you know, he was prepared to answer all those questions. And then they never even got to that stage. Mm. They looked at his bank card and his ID and they just said, no, we're not going to do this. Um, so what is the context in which I looked at these stories? Well, it was provided by some emails that I got that show bank tellers. This is a different bank. This is JP Morgan Chase, but things like this happen at big banks. Generally, the, the tellers, will send each other emails to warn each other about suspicious characters coming into their branches, especially if you have a bank with like, you know, 10 branches and a, a radius, um, you know, let's say 50 miles or something. Mm -hmm. um, the tellers will be on a network and they'll, they'll say, Hey, you know, this, this happened at my branch today, be on the lookout for this guy. And sometimes it really is a fraudster, somebody who has stolen a bank card or, uh, faked an ID or something, but I was I was handed a cache of emails that showed J.P. Morgan Chase tellers uh, describing suspicious characters, and in some of the emails where the suspicious characters weren't black, there was behavior that was clearly weird. You know, this person presented a stolen bank card and tried to withdraw money. Then there were all, all these other emails where it 
the, the suspicion appeared to be because the person was black. The person's race was described, his, his or her clothing was described in great detail. Whether they had dreadlocks was a, a common um, descriptor. And, and then it was like really vague stuff. Like, you know, this young man came in and presented a check for cashing and we called fraud and he took the check with him. Hmm. Like, how is that? what's wrong with that except that it shows that you wouldn't cash his check. Um, and so this is racial profiling. It happens on the street. You know, it happens. We see police all over the country doing it to black citizens. And then this is the, this is what it looks like in banks. Um, so, so that's, you know, that's the, that's like a tiny piece of, of, the answer to your question. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we need to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking with Emily Flitter of the New York Times about her book, The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. Also want to get going with you on the phones and on social. Give us a call and let us know what you make about banking and finance in this country and the role it plays in racial inequality. Have you worked at a bank or been a customer at a bank and noticed discrimination taking place? Do you know people who've had that experience, perhaps? What was their story? Uh, What does the process look like when these things happen inside our financial institutions? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and our guest is Emily Flitter, a finance reporter for the New York Times. She recently wrote a book titled The White Wall How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. We're talking about the racial wealth gap and the role that the banking and finance system plays in not just creating those gaps, but Uh, perpetuating them through pretty open discrimination in some cases. We want to hear from you as well about your experience with the banking and finance system in this country or in this city or in this state. Uh, Have you noticed this kind of discrimination, disparate treatment of people based on race? Uh, What do you make of it? What do you make of the solutions or the possible solutions uh, to these kind of things? We are talking a lot these days about solutions to racial inequality. This is a fundamental one. The fact that the average or per capita white person in America has six times the wealth of uh, the average African American. Uh, that is a, an incredible gap. It, it persists despite the uh, the legal reforms of the civil rights movement and dating back before that, uh, all of the things that were done to try to level the playing field in this country. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313 313- 
577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can make you part of the program that way. Before we get to our uh, listeners, Emily, I want to talk just a little more about uh, what goes on inside banks. And uh, we were talking before about what happens to customers, African-American customers sometimes, when they try to get services from banks. But you also tell the story of Ricardo Peters, who is somebody who worked at J.P. Morgan Chase. And I think the connection between what goes on inside banks and what happens to people who go to get services from financial institutions is really important. So tell us a little about Ricardo Peters. So you're right. This is a really um, illustrative story of the nexus between how racism affects employees and how it affects customers. Ricardo was a um, an extremely dedicated uh, young employee of J.P. Morgan Chase. He started out at a call center answering people's questions about their credit cards, and one of his jobs at that um, in that position was to figure out how to sell them more product while they were getting help with the product that they already had. And he was so good at it that he was able to change tracks, get out of the call center, get into a branch, and, and, and then get the licensing that he needed to become a financial advisor. And all in a matter of, you know, a few years. The, it's a career path that takes some people a long time um, to get on. And he just, that was his defining uh, aspect of his life. He just really, really loved this work. Um, he got all of these sales awards and he he kept every little card and every trophy that he would get from J.P. Morgan, you know, for, for being a good employee and, and selling harder than anybody else. And he ended up, he had started out in Florida. He ended up in Phoenix um, and he, he was a financial advisor, but he didn't just want to be a financial advisor to anyone. He wanted to get the chance to manage the money of J.P. Morgan's wealthier customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a, a cutoff. Basically, uh, if you want to be a Chase private client, that's their, um, their upscale retail client uh, experience. You have to have $250,000. And if you have that with Chase, you get all kinds of perks. You get um, better loan terms. You get free passes to um, VIP sections of sporting events and museums and discounts on travel. It's, it's, you know, it's what they want to do to, to keep your business when you're, when you have that much money and their financial advisors are kind of separated into two categories. There's, uh, a position where you advise the people who don't have that much money, and then there's private client advisor, and mm-hmm. that's where, when you're good, um, you know, supposedly it's a meritocracy, and if you are good enough, then you get to handle these bigger clients. So Ricardo wanted that, and that's really where he met the wall. He was telling his boss, I want to do this, and his boss was like, I don't know if it's going to work out, you're not a good fit, wait till next spring that kind of thing. Next spring rolls around, same stuff. I just don't think it's going to work out. And he can't figure out why. And I should mention, Ricardo is black. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he 
and he's experiencing all kinds of little things in the branches. Um, he's with a, you know, a, a slew of other financial advisors in these branches, and all of a sudden he ends up in a windowless office by himself. He can't sit with them. He um, he's got this other boss who's just out to get him every time he does something. She complains. He just really feels like he's being singled out for bad treatment. So he starts recording things. He records his boss, whose name is Frank, um, telling him what he should be doing differently, telling him, you know, he has to wait longer to get this promotion, all of that stuff. And then one day he goes to his boss, he's got his recording, uh, app going and he says look i can be a private client advisor i just brought in this client who has four hundred thousand dollars and the client that they were talking about whom they both knew was a a black woman who had gotten four hundred thousand dollars in a settlement with with a municipality over the death of her son so it was very sad she had come to ricardo and he said i'll take care of you we'll bank you and We'll make sure that, you know, we help you grow your money. And here's where Frank showed his hand. He said, you're not investing a dime for this lady. This isn't money she earned. She doesn't respect it. She's from Section 8. It's going to be gone. The whole th- the whole sum is going to be gone in 12 to 24 months. I've seen it a thousand times. And Ricardo says, and this is really the heartbreaking moment in this recording ricardo says but isn't that what we're for to show her how to do things right Mm -hmm. and he's like no you're not investing a dime for this lady Mm. and that was the recording that ricardo brought to me that was just the indisputable racism not only was ricardo being told all of the vague things that so many other people had told me they were being told by these big banks about why they couldn't advance in their careers. But also we were seeing how the bank viewed this customer that she had enough to be a chase private client, but somehow her money didn't have the same value and she was black. And um, so that's how, you know, when you mistreat black employees, that's how you then also end up mistreating black customers. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I, I want to talk about one more thing before we start to get to our listeners and the phones and on social. And that's this movement, this sudden movement that we saw in 2020 uh, for very large banks to start saying, we acknowledge that there is this racial wealth gap. Some of them acknowledge that, that the banking and finance system has played a role in creating it. And they come out during the pandemic and during the Black Lives Matter protests and say, we're going to commit these funds to trying to do better, to trying to narrow that gap. Can you talk just a little about what role that has played in all of this and whether whether you have faith that these institutions um, can or will really contribute to more fairness? Well, let's start with, Stephen, the way that you just put it. You use the word commit Mm -hmm. in terms of, um, you know, these dollars, and then to try to make things better. What the money really was, especially if you look at J.P. Morgan's $30 billion, 
was mostly their business. Twenty-eight of the thirty billion dollars was J.P. Morgan classifying its for-profit business as contributing to closing the racial wealth gap in various ways. They had arguments for making these classifications. Um, for instance, several billion dollars was was pledged in increased home loans to black and Latino borrowers. Hmm. There was an, um, a, a section about doing loans to big developers who do multifamily housing and use the low income housing tax credit program, which is also a great program if you want to make a lot of money and you're a bank or a developer. It's a, it's a very lucrative business. Um, there was some small business lending. Um, there was even stuff that was for marketing, like J.P. Morgan was saying, we're going to spend, uh, I, don't, I, I, I don't have the numbers sitting here, but like, let's call it $50 million to pay for ads and materials that talk about what a great bank J.P. Morgan is. Mm. But we're going to make sure that that marketing reaches black potential customers. And this is supposed to close the racial wealth gap. So think about that. Um, the the question that I got from people when I was trying to work out what this all really meant was, why are they putting a number on it? Why not just change how you operate forever? Right, right. Um, so I think that's that's what I'll say. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Just that's just the introduction to what these pledges really were. Right. I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting criticism of it uh, that that you, they could have said here are the things that we're doing that perpetuate and and create this inequality. We're going to stop those things. We're going to focus on how to fix those those uh, those deficiencies. Uh, instead, what they said was, well, we'll set aside money to to include more African Americans in the business that uh, that we already uh, that we already conduct. I, I, I don't hear you saying that that won't have any effect, but it does raise really really important questions about the behavior that you document in the book, uh, behavior that uh, African Americans encounter when they come to these institutions, and uh, behavior that. African Americans witness when they are uh, when they are employees inside these institutions. Why wasn't it both and? I guess is what you're asking instead of an either or. Well, it's that, and it's it's more than that. I mean, if you look at, for instance, J.P. Morgan's um, thirty billion dollar pledge, the portion that uh, is was going to increase home loans to black borrowers. Um, before this pledge, at, during a time when interest rates were really low, I think the year was 2019, um, the bank made a, a total of four, a, a total, sorry, 4% of the loans that the bank made uh, in mortgages went to black borrowers, mm -hmm. 4%. Mm -hmm. After the pledge started, so this would have been like for the year 2021, mortgage rates were still really low. Um, 5% of the total home loans 
that JP Morgan made went to black borrowers. That's like proportionally from 4% to 5%, a big increase, but overall it's still a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver. I mean, it's like way, way less than the population of black Americans compared to white Americans. Um, why is it still that low? And why didn't JP Morgan say, we're going to try to bring the percentage of home loans that we do to black borrowers up to the population. So Mm -hmm. it matches the population. Mm -hmm. The answer is there are very specific reasons um, that for a host of reasons, black borrowers, many black borrowers can't qualify for the same kind of mortgage that white borrowers have. And it goes back to the racial wealth gap and to the racist history embedded in credit scores Mm -hmm. and to the racist depression of the values of homes in black neighborhoods. All of these things add up. Um, JP Morgan has gotten out of lending in every program that's designed to fix that. So for instance, FHA, does these mortgages that are supported by the government in ways that a regular uh, Fannie Freddie backed mortgage isn't. Um, There's down payment assistance. There are all kinds of different terms if you get an FHA loan. So J.P. Morgan got out of of doing FHA loans years ago and has no intention of getting back into it. If you wanted to really, truly help close the racial wealth gap, you'd have to take a look at the programs that exist, the way the federal government uh, designed ways to help and say, we're also going to do our part, even if it's annoying, even if it's extra paperwork, even if we hate, you know, all of the bureaucracy, um, because we think building up the wealth in this community will will overall make this country better and will also make us uh, able to access a more stable and Um, a vast pool of wealthy people we didn't have before. I mean, you would think that a bank would want to build up more wealth in potential customers and then, Mm -hmm. and then have those customers. There's none of that in these racial wealth gap pledges. There's just these window dressing type things that have an end date and they have a, a, a dollar value and they're designed to wow you without really having you look that hard. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking with Emily Flitter of the New York Times, also author of The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. We'll get going with you, the listeners, on the phones and on social as well. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And We'll include you in the conversation. We'll also welcome another voice to the conversation. Margot Delal is co-founder and executive director of the Detroit Community Wealth Fund, which is an institution that is working on trying to close the racial wealth gap right here in Southeast Michigan. So we'll be right back with more of this discussion on Detroit Today. listening to the 
Mortgage Rate Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. We've got Emily Flitter with us. She is a finance reporter for the New York Times and author of a book titled The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts uh, Black America. We have been talking uh, a lot about discrimination within financial institutions and the consequences of that uh, discrimination, the lingering wealth grabs that uh, exist in our country. Uh, I want to welcome another voice to the conversation as well, because there are a number of financial organizations that are actively trying to create avenues for wealth creation in black and brown communities as a pushback against the discrimination that we still face at larger financial institutions. Uh, to talk about uh, this, we've got uh, the, the fo- co-founder of the Detroit Community Wealth Fund, Margot Dalal. Margot, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So uh, just recap for us what the Detroit Community Wealth Fund does, how it got started, and how it's directed, I guess, at the, the, the wealth gap that uh, we're talking about that is perpetuated by other kinds of financial institutions. Sure. So Detroit Community Wealth Fund, um, we're a local lender here in Detroit and and in Michigan, but we're actually a member of a national cooperative loan fund called the Seed Commons. And I think the Seed Commons actually offers a lot of solutions to what Ms. Flitter is raising, namely that we're a democratic financial institution. So we're actually putting decision-making power where capital is going in the hands of the community. Um, And we're making capital available to communities so that they can make sure that their needs are met, that their quality of life is improved. Um, And what we're doing with capital is, is, is democratizing it as opposed to being held and concentrated by a tiny group of people. So we're increasing asset, um, increasing access, we don't require personal collateral or personal credit um, that to dictate where capital is 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 distributed. Um, talk about the ways that we see um, in Southeast Michigan this wealth gap playing out, and the barriers that banking and financial institutions have erected to to fixing it to to, to narrowing that gap. Um, well, I, I would say we see in Detroit, um, I think maybe more concentrated, it's a majority black city, right? So mm-hmm. the, the, the real estate, the wealth gap and how the real estate market ex- was not accessible to black communities um, in Detroit, that's, that's a big example here. But I think, I think that there are a lot of progressive lenders in, in Detroit, particularly, that are trying to kind of right some of these wrongs, but, but they're not the traditional larger financial institutions, right? So I think what we're having to do is, is, is education at different levels, right? Helping people understand um, like how to access finance and, and, and maybe some of the programs that are, are better. Um, I, th- I think it's education at all levels. And I think in terms of in terms of equity, I think it's helping people understand, yeah, how how they can access capital and, and maybe what are what are more progressive options, I, uh-huh. I suppose. Yeah. So so talk a little about some of the businesses that you all have helped to create and what your numbers look like uh, making this effort. And it's great with about 25 worker-owned businesses. And that number is significant because it shows that people are choosing to create 
worker-owned businesses to, despite no formal state or city support and, and also access to capital is, is a barrier. And nationally at the Sea Commons, we've invested about $30 million into worker-owned and community-owned businesses. And every one of those dollars was democratically approved by a representative of communities all over the U.S. So we're, I think we're trying to grow this option of democratic finance um, and, and scale it, right? It's, it's hyper-local at the Detroit level. We're investing in community members, but it's part of a much larger national strategy to democratize finance and increase access to capital for marginalized communities and primarily for, for black, the black population. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. If you want to join the conversation, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. Uh, Micheline on Twitter says, wealth isn't just the money you earn or have in savings. It's accrued over time, most often generated by generations of successful home ownership, i.e. homes that increase Value. Big Neil on Twitter says banks do the same things that all places and people do that fear black people. They weaponize the police. The police are used to watch black folks, but they seem to pay little to no attention to others, especially to white Americans. Uh, let's go to the phones here and start today with Joan in Southfield. Joan, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hi. Hi. Stephen, this has been my observation that this problem is long rooted in a chess strategy by the um, larger organizations. And the blacks need to get on their own realizations that the whites are not going to release their vices on monetary control. And to they have to use their own souls to release it, the, the, the whites, as we, we formerly called them, were, Mr. Charlie, are not going to release their control. They're not going to release them. They're not. And, and that, and that is, 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 does not boil down to the terrorists. It boils down to the essence of this, the root of this difficulty, and that is the, those who own control. And when I say control, I'm not talking about, about, about Chase. I'm not speaking of all the, uh, the other banking institutions. I'm speaking of those who own, own control of the diamond mines. I'm speaking control of the oil mines, mm. those who own or think they own the energies of this earth. Yeah. Uh, Joan, I really appreciate the call and the perspective. And listen, that, that level of frustration and, and belief that things – uh, can't get uh, better is is I, I think something that a lot of people feel, and so I'm glad you called and and shared that. Uh, Emily Flitter, I want to come back to you and talk about um, the things that banks are doing to try to fix uh, this problem. We talked about the 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 deficiencies that you see in that, but I want to have you talk after all of this research about your sense of the possibility to fix this internally in the banking and finance system in our country? Or is Joan right that African-Americans need to create their own institutions and solve the problem ourselves? Of course, the the, the barriers to that uh, are a whole other show to talk about. But 
but I wonder what you make after all of this research of what Joan is saying here. Well, I I definitely don't think that um, the answer is to have African Americans create a completely separate system and, as you put it, Stephen, solve the problem themselves because, the you know, at various points in American history, um, that was the the modus operandi and the the white establishment managed to to undermine and destroy a lot of the things that um, black entrepreneurs and black capitalists created so we can't have that that's um, nor should the the burden to fix this problem rest on its victims mm-hmm. um, so I think that and this is what my reporting has shown banks aren't going to respond by um, hit after hit in the courts. For instance, every single major bank has been sued for racial discrimination uh, on a class action basis and has settled for tens or, in one case, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, and they haven't really changed. Um, What I uh, see is the pervasive culture of racism that goes from bottom to top and top to bottom. And I think that the way to change it is to have these institutions uh, acknowledge what they've done Mm -hmm. and what they are doing and then turn outward and support a government funded reparations program. This is here's why I think that this is so important in supporting reparations. The banks will have to publicly articulate a narrative for why reparations are needed. Um, In doing so, they will have to explain how they've contributed to this state of affairs, Mm -hmm. this horrible, um, you know, self-perpetuating injustice um, that still exists today. The reason why I think it would be so good for the banks to support the government uh, funded reparations program is that they would be able to to apply all of the positive uh, uh, sort of the, the the glossy corporate speak that they're so good at to something upbeat. Okay, here's the narrative. Here's why we need this program. But then here's how great we the banks are. We champion this program. We want these restorative payments to be made to the descendants of slaves. However you figure out, you know, who deserves to to receive reparations. We're so excited to have new uh, wealthy customers, potential customers. We want to compete for them. There's a positive element to having reparations and to having these banks with their incredible um, ability to lobby Washington, Mm. get behind this program. And that would be a real change. And then they would have to explain this all to their employees and their employees might understand better who they're dealing with when they're dealing with a black customer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here. John on the east side, I've only got a couple minutes left, but go ahead. Hey, Stephen. So uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, we had a community development corporation. We were doing uh, low-income housing and 
tax credits and what have you. And uh, Shorebank came in and built a brand new branch on Mac and Alter. Nothing else around there. The building's still there. They're gone. Um, so one of our housing committee members worked there as a loan officer. He happened to be a white guy. And his his whole stance on this was the the black manager was afraid to lend money to black people. He did all he could, but they just basically, you know, they were only there a few years, and they're gone now. And I, I want to say they were out of Chicago, and it was, you know, it was all supposed to be uh, solving the problems you're talking about right now. And this was in the early 2000s. Mm, wow. Uh, John, I'm sorry to hear uh, about that story. Margot Dalal, this is uh, in some ways exactly the kind of issue you're trying to address at the community fund, um, uh, the community wealth fund. Talk about how neighborhood groups like the one John is involved in can get help from the Detroit uh, wealth community, community wealth fund. Well, I think, yeah, that is a really sad story. And I think it, it, it speaks a lot to just like how racism is embedded in, it can be embedded in, in all of us. And I think it is a mindset shift where we at the Detroit Community Wealth Fund are, we're very risk tolerant. And I think that is a mindset shift um, that I have to practice every day, right? Making, not making assumptions and, and being extremely mindful um, of the assumptions we're making. And, and part of the way that we lend is by working ongoing with, with community groups to make sure that their plans um, are feasible, right? We don't want anyone to, to, to fail. So, and, and we're only repaid if, if a group is successful. So mm-hmm. we look for cooperative democratic groups, um, community owned groups in Detroit, and we work with them to make sure that their plan um, is adequate. And that, that takes trust building and it's difficult, but in the long run it works and it's, we're more likely to, to build community wealth when we lend that way. Yeah. And, and that trust is about a relationship, which I think is easier to build when you are local and when you are part of the community. I mean, one of the things that I think aggravates uh, this problem, Margot, is distance. And I think you guys have done an interesting job of eliminating that difference, that distance. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And the last thing I'll say is that we are helping community residents learn how to lend, right? I did not come from a finance background. I did not, I don't have any um, experience really in in investing besides working at Detroit Community Wealth Fund. And I think that's also a really important role is that we're not taking people from high-end elite institutions and telling them how to do community financing. We're actually taking community members and helping them become loan officers so that they can do this work in the community, which I think is is also turning the the institution on its head. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Emily Flitter and Margot Dalal, really great to have both of you here on Detroit today. Uh, Emily, congratulations uh, on the book, and and uh, I hope that it sparks the kind of discussion that leads to a solution. So so thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, uh, that's going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when we're going to talk with yet another Democratic candidate who has hopped into the race for Senate here in Michigan, hoping to replace outgoing Senator Debbie Stabenow. 
This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.